This is Musecast 14, your podcast for everything roleplay in the world of Eorzea. I'm your host, Emmy. And I'm your host, Remix Sakura. And if you've been listening to our podcasts for the past couple episodes, you'll know I've been very excited about this episode. Oh, which one is it? Tell me. You know which one it is. <laughs> <laughs> we are discussing my personal favorite city-state, and one that initially I didn't like as much, but as I kind of got to know it, it really, really grew on me, and so yeah, now it's my favorite. And of course, I'm talking about the desert sands of Uldah. Uldah. Honestly, I have a soft spot in my heart for it as well. You know it's your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Limps is interesting, but Ulda is fascinating. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's going on with it. Lots of good stuff, of course, but there's a lot of stuff that kind of needs to be improved, but that's kind of what makes it interesting. Yeah, we learned a lot about that in the 2.1 to 2.5 patch cycle. And you're right about that contrast that it has. On the one hand, it's a very vibrant and diverse and, of course, wealthy city. It's pretty on the surface, but underneath that, there's this sordid underbelly where things are very corrupt and very highly stratified. Yeah, it's definitely, I like to call it a gilded city-state. Yes. Shiny on the outside, but on the bottom, eh, it's like, you know, yeah. Yeah, especially with with the government the way it is. I I think I would call it an oligarchy gone wrong. Yeah. (laughs) That's why I think that even though all of the Eorzean city-states have their problem, I think Ulda is the most fucked up. Just because Aww. it's it's <laughs> it's so deeply entrenched. Well, I also said that I really liked it, so it doesn't mean that I, <laughs> it doesn't mean that it's not a very fascinating place. But it also reminds me of my personal hometown, also a city that has a shiny exterior in many places, mm-hmm. is vibrant and diverse and very very cultured, but has that other side that's dirty and poor. And not as shiny that people don't often see. And that's, of course, New York City. (laughs) Yeah. New York is kind of weird because you do have, like, this this very high, like, Wall Street upper class kind of thing. But then you have a lot of, like, homeless people out on the street, like, right next to each other. Yeah. And that's kind of the same in Uldah, too, I think. Yeah. Seeing them juxtapose is really what makes the contrast. Definitely. And who is going to save Uldah from itself? Nanamo! Anonimo and Ralbon (laughs) are heroes. We hope. The small sultana and the beefy general. Yes. (laughs) I believe they can do it. I I hope they can do it. It's kind of tough as it is right now, but I'm hoping that they can kind of not so much get the situation under control, but learn how to work with the situation a bit better, get a bit more crafty in, in how they go about accomplishing what they want. Yeah, there's been a lot of drama, and I can't wait for more drama to happen. I mean, we've gone to Ishgar for so long, and I'm just like, let's go back to Ulda. Yes, please. <laughs> please do it. Uh. Yeah, they kind of got left behind when Heaven's Word came out, because I think the focus then was definitely on Ishgar. So whenever All Amigo comes out, I'm really, really hoping that they get back into looking a bit more at Ulda. Yeah. That whole patch cycle that went on from 2.0, I mean, we got to know the city better, its problems better, and get to know the characters better. And, and they also grew a lot from their experiences. Oh, they from did. The story, 
then the story did continue into Heaven's Word. Yeah, especially Nanamo, I think. She she has changed a whole lot from how she started out. I think it was the Sultana the Sultana Seven, right? Where yeah. it talks about how Nanamo sort of sees herself as really a puppet. And I think as she as she's gone on, she still realizes I think that she doesn't have a whole lot of power, but she's realizing more what she can do with what she has. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll go on into the people, I think, a little bit later, probably in another episode here. Yeah, we still got a lot to say. We do. So so let's talk about Olda's beginnings. Let's do it. Or even its predecessors. Yeah, so if you really want to talk about Ulda and how it came to be, I guess you'd have to talk about the Kingdom of Baladia. And we'll, we'll end up, I think, talking a little bit more about Baladia and even another kingdom that was sort of related to it. That's the Kingdom of Sildit and like bonus content on Patreon here. But what you need to know is sort of a basic thing is Ulda and Sildit split off as these two sort of rival kingdoms um, from Baladia because there was a little issue over succession. And so you just have these two desert kingdoms being rivals with each other, but of course you're in the desert. Water is going to be very, very precious. And unfortunately, in a time of drought, these two kingdoms ended up getting into a war over this water. And as a result, through, well, some botched zombification, shall we say, uh, mm-hmm. Sildi ended up losing the war. Uda did try to deal with the zombie problems and as a result, though, Sildi was sort of eradicated, so now we just have Uda. We will talk about it more, but you may remember a little bit of the zombie powder from one of the Hildebrand quests. Oh yeah, I think I do. I do remember that. That that probably was a tool that they used. <laughs> yeah, so even Hildebrand will teach you a little bit of lore. <laughs> even as uh, <laughs> ridiculous as it is, as outrageous as it is, you still learn a bit of lore from it. Which is great, because I uh-huh. love the Hildebrand quest line too, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> anyway, um, back to Ulda though. So Ulda was, of course, ruled by, as the name suggests, the Ul Dynasty for a while. But what you might not know is that it was actually ruled at one point by the Thorn Dynasty, and that's where the um, little event, Little Ladies' Day, came from. Was during that time of the Thorn Dynasty. So the Thorns were a group of heroes, um, and really the big key player you need to know from the Thorn Dynasty is the Sultan by the name of Baldric Thorn. And he had a daughter who he very, very much loved, whose name was Edvia. And, you know, the Little Lady's Day kind of gets a little bit more into her story. But one day, she mysteriously, really not so mysteriously, I think, disappeared, leaving for... to go off with some man or something like that. Yeah. She was in love with a commoner. Yeah. And dad didn't like that. And so she disappeared, and there's kind of been a legend surrounding that ever since. So anyway, so now now the Thorn Dynasty doesn't really have a successor. So the Ul Dynasty sort of rises as a result of that. So the, the current Sultana, Nanamo Unamo, is actually part of the second Ul Dynasty. She's still related to the original Sultan of Uda, who was... Sasagan ul Sisigan, but she's really a distant relative at this point. Yeah, she's 17th in the line, and that might confuse people initially because you're like, well, Ulda is all these hundreds and hundreds of years old, but there was a little bit of a break in the old dynasty. 
Yeah, the Wu Dynasty, the Second Wu Dynasty came to be about 300 years ago. Yep, yep. So it hasn't been around for really all that long, relatively speaking. Yeah, and that break in the dynasty has some impacts today that we're going to talk about a bit later. But first, we want to talk about kind of the state of Old On now and how it has changed since the time when the Sultanate was the largest and strongest power. Yeah, it used to be that Uda, Uda was controlled really only by the Sultanate, so you'd have a Sultan or a Sultana who was in charge of pretty much everything. But recently that's kind of eroded, and as a result a lot of the decision-making power is really in the hands of a couple of groups. Like maybe two, I can think of two other groups that yeah. really control things. So the the sultanate really doesn't have a whole lot of decision-making power. Though to be fair, I guess it does hold a lot of social influence. Yeah. Um it it really represents like the voice of the people, I think, especially Nanamo and what she believes. And kind of funnily enough actually, she who is on paper, I guess, the monarch of the city-state has tried to push for a more democratic system. Yeah. Kind of funny. Yeah, that she's the one that wants to give the voice to the people. Yeah. She would rather that they rule and that she be their representative. Or even if it means that she would just have to step down and go to being an everyday citizen, she'd rather do that than having it be in the hands of the syndicate. Absolutely. The syndicate, I think, kind of had a good principle behind it. What the syndicate is, is it's a group of the six wealthiest citizens of Uda. And they meet every so often to vote on things like kind of trade, foreign policy. For example, you get to sit in as a warrior of light on a meeting where they're discussing what to do with Doman refugees. And they were the ones who decided to accept the Alamegan refugees at one point. And so I, I guess... If you look at it uh, at an economic level, that kind of could be a good thing in theory. You know, you have wealthy people, they made good decisions financially, so maybe it could help the the economy prosper. In practice, I don't think it was that good of a choice. Eh. <laughs> yeah. Not so great. They have too much power and they have too much focus on just wealth building. Yeah, wealth building and personal power building, I think. Yeah, yeah. With such a small group, people have hidden agendas or conflicts of interest. Yeah, and so you have a lot of corruption. And yeah, 2.55 really demonstrates that. And really that, that <laughs> struggle for personal power, too, I think. Yeah. If you didn't know, one of the members of the syndicate, Teleji Adeleji, tries to kill Nanamo in order to gain, I think, like, more access to the Omega weapon. Yeah, that was part of it, but he probably also saw her as an annoyance and an impediment as well. And then somebody else, Lolorito Nanorito, decided that it would be a good idea to take advantage of that little scheme, and therefore tried to, well, he did, change the potion that was going to end up killing Nanamo into something that would put her into a coma. And the idea was, maybe Raubon will get mad. Maybe he'll end up dying in the struggle. Like, wouldn't it be funny if Raubon ended up dying and Teleji, my biggest rival, even though he's kind of always fallen behind Lolorito, but wouldn't it be funny if Teleji ended up dying in the struggle too? 
Haha, look what happens. So, <laughs> Ravan thankfully is safe. Very glad of that. Minus one arm. <laughs> Minus one arm, yeah. <laughs> Rest in pieces, Ravan's oh. left arm. Yes, rip. Oh. <laughs> That does make me sad, though. My eyes are watering. Aw, <laughs> aw, yeah. It's, but that's crazy how Lolorito schemes in someone else's scheme. There's a lot of scheming and a lot of backstabbing going on within the syndicate. Yeah, that's one problem. The other thing, though, that I do not like about the syndicate is that they're the ones who really are in charge of enforcing things. Because if you take a look at its members, I can think of four of them. You've got Ralvan Alden, who's in charge of the Immortal Flames. You've got Telegi Adelegi, of course, and Lord Lolorito, who are in charge of funding the Brass Blades. And then you've got Feargeist, who is in charge of the Stone Torches. Yeah. And so the, the Grand Company, and then the Brass Blades, which is like really looking over Uda as a whole, but that's being funded by people on the Syndicate. And then the Stone Torches, who are in charge of protecting the mineral assets... That's also being funded by somebody on the syndicate. So your police now are being controlled by the wealthy. Yeah, and that's pretty scary. And the people who, and they're the people who make the laws too. And it's not like being run by the syndicate in general. It's just a couple of individuals. Yeah, even even within the syndicate, there's these power plays. That is terrifying. Ugh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> so there's a lot of, a lot of kind of nasty stuff going on within there. I mean, and of course, there are some people who are wealthy. You know, look at Ravan. Very, very noble person. Very sweet. Ultimate dad. <laughs> yeah. And he's the only one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he does care about, you know, refugees and things like that. But it's such a minority. Yep. And he can try and things can go his way. But a lot of the time, I think his voice ends up being drowned out by these not-so-savory people. Yeah, the thing is that Nanamo and Raubon, they share this passion and care for giving power to the people, to the average people, and of also helping the poor. So one big reason why they worked together long, long ago to get him on the syndicate is that so he could be their voice, be her voice, because Nanamo didn't have enough of her own voice. Unfortunately, I still don't think it's enough, but it helps. <laughs> yeah. It definitely helps. So it's like the two of them against everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking now that Teleji's dead, I'm hoping, I'm very, very hopeful that whoever ends up succeeding him as the next member of the syndicate is going to be somebody who ends up supporting Nanamo and Raban's goals. Mm, I actually had not thought of that. Wow. Yeah. No, I'm thinking ahead. I'm thinking like... <laughs> Who's going to be this next person on the syndicate? Knowing Square Enix is probably going to be somebody who's just as bad, but, you know, there's hope. Yeah. There's still hope. Yeah. Ooh, wow. So. <laughs> yeah. We're open to theories. Yeah. Is it someone we already know? Is it going to be a new character? Good? Bad? Somewhere in between? Hmm. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think it would be Scoop Patoot, though. <laughs> oh, oh, no. It would not be my Gilgamesh character. Oh. He's poor. Yeah, well, here's the thing. If they elected members of the syndicate based on cuteness, then he would definitely be there. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't... I don't know. It would be funny if the warrior of like got elected, but or not elected, but was the wealthiest citizen... I know that's never going to happen because people have varying amounts of gill and they aren't even a, a citizen of Ulda, but it would be kind of funny if they did. Four Starcrafter becomes new syndicate member. <laughs> <laughs> 
Will he be a monetarist or a royalist? Gasp. <laughs> anyway, so going back, <laughs> we, we've kind of sidetracked here again, but going back to the people in power, though, there's another group that, at least on paper, is responsible for creating and enacting the laws of Uldah. And that's the Order of Nald Thal, which is the sort of religious group of thaumaturges who operate out of the Arzaneth Ossuary and Milvaneth Sacrarium. And those are just two temples. I guess one of them is closed. The Sacrarium is still undergoing renovations, or it's, it's being rebuilt after the Calamity. These two temples were built to worship the duality Naldal. And that in itself isn't bad, you know, the religious organization could have good intents and things like that. But, and it's a big but, it's led by this Lalafell named Dulala Dula, who happens to be on the syndicate. And she's kind of a neutral player, it seems like, in the syndicate meetings. But I think the fact that she's on there kind of suggests, like, maybe the interests of the merchants and the interests of the religious groups within Uldah are kind of intertwined as well. And it's kind of supported, actually, if you go to the ossuary and the sacrarium, because it seems like those have become very much for-profit places. Yeah, and that's because the ossuary, at least, who's dedicated to the worship of Thal, who represents death in the duality. They're basically letting people buy favored places in Thal's realm. The more you give, the better your place, the higher your likelihood. Basically equating wealth on Earth with wealth in the afterlife, making the acquisition of wealth a noble and religious and sacred goal. Now that's really toxic. Yeah, it's, it's become a very Gil-centric culture, even down to the religion. Yeah, and as for Dulala, I definitely saw her in the whole Old storyline that took place in Heavensward as that sort of lawful neutral. Yeah. You know, she told on you to Lolorito, but, but she also helped you. So she's kind of like not on anybody's side. Yeah, I think so. We don't know too much about her, but it would be really great to learn more about the Order of Nalthal because it's very, very fascinating. And it, we actually have so much to say about them and analysis about them that we couldn't fit it in the episode. Yeah, that'll have to go into our bonus content later on, I think. Yeah, BTW. To get access to, to any of our bonus content, all you have to do is subscribe to our Patreon page. Yay, we have one of those now. Yes, you can subscribe on our website. Every tier gets you access to better stuff. Yeah, and if, if you do decide to donate to us on Patreon, like it's, it's just kind of helping us to keep running. Yeah. It does cost a little bit to like have our website up and things like that. So it would be great to have like more resources and things like that. But more importantly, we just want to keep, you know, keep running as we are. And having some contributions would be very, very much appreciated. Yeah, we're just going to reinvest it in the show. Yep, exactly. All right. Speaking of money, right? We're talking all this about this materialistic culture. <laughs> and, Speaking and... <laughs> of giving people money. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was a very good transition. <laughs> I commend you for that. Oh, thank you. That's, that's why you have me on the show. So when I look at Olda and its different power factions, I began to think about real-life parallels and comparisons that we can make. So we were talking about how the three major powers are the merchants, the wealthy people, the economic force, the religious force, and... The least powerful, at least currently, is the monarchy. 
Now, let's look back at European history since the medieval times and see where we can draw insights. So ever since the medieval era and the feudal system, ever since that ended, it was a serious decline in the power of royal and noble families, especially in their wealth. Their wealth would mostly come from taxes and the labor of the serfs that lived on their land. When that fell apart, well, you've got taxes, but there's only so much that you can tax like poor peasant farmers. They only have so much money and you only have so much land. You can't really acquire, you can't really acquire new land. You can't just go in invading people. So there's essentially a limit on how much money they can gain. And if they're not in the top notch anymore, there's going to come competition. Now, when you have merchants who sell products that start businesses, their ability to gain wealth is virtually unlimited because you can make as much money as you like if you expand your business enough or if you just charge higher prices. The other difference there is that the kind of wealth that nobles would have was things like land, nobility and titles, but they started to mean less over time. And they'd have things like gold, gemstones, these sort of valuable but non-liquid cash assets. You can't really easily trade land for food, land for something else, gold for something else. But as a merchant, you're basically always gaining cash wealth, which gives them more flexibility and more power. The value of cash stays pretty constant, whereas the value of land, you know, not so much. I see it as the value of gold stays the same and the value of cash kind of changes. Maybe. I'm but not, here's the thing. I'm not an economist. <laughs> yeah, here's, here's the thing that I'm thinking, though. You have, you know, the nobility who's collecting taxes from the peasants. And you have to kind of set a good rate of taxes. If you end up taxing too high, then you are going to end up with people who do not like you. You can have civil unrest. And that was the case in Silde. Yeah. King Lalawefu ended up taxing too high, and so people kind of did not like that at all. On the other hand, when you are a merchant, you do have that cash, yes, but you also have the ability as you expand your business to gain access to these resources. And as you control more and more of these resources, you also control the prices at which they are set. Ah, yes. And that way, you are able to both have access to the cash and non-cash resources. And that really, I think, gives you a lot of power. This is very, very true. Good insights. So another big change happened in European history again when we had the Industrial Revolution, when businesses were now able to expand more than ever through the use of machinery. And... One of the reasons why this was able to happen was directly before that, there were democratic revolutions in Europe, in France, in the US, and in various colonized nations all over North and South America. So the shifting of wealth across the different strata, the growth, the growth of a middle class is associated with democratic uprisings, with Average people now have more money. They have a little bit more power. They understand that they are just as much humans as the people in power, and they just start to demand more, and then you get these revolutions. Mm -hmm. So in real life, basically the trend was to go from monarchy rule to democracy. 
power once came from nobility and land, and now with a middle class, it's in the power of average people, of a greater number of people. Money and power are more evenly distributed. Also, in real life, the European monarchs also were closely allied with the churches, the religious institutions. So as the nobles and the monarchs declined in power, so did the religious institutions. And at the end of the day, things became a lot more balanced than they were before. In Olda, things, they look a little bit different. The trend was to go from monarchy to oligarchy. Instead of the middle class being sort of a more enabling the average people, it enabled a small number of people to just replace themselves as rulers by becoming the most wealthy. The wealth is very, very highly concentrated in the hands of a few people. It's not as evenly spread. So essentially, the merchants are the rulers, and then there's everybody else. There isn't much of a middle class that we can see. There's not a lot of upward mobility. Hmm. I'm kind of thinking of it from another angle now that you say it. Yeah? So the trend went from monarchy to oligarchy, right? You have ruled by the wealthy. But those people may have started out as, you know, everyday people. And so what I'm thinking is, well, okay, you're moving from a ship from rule by one person to rule by several people. And so I guess in that respect, it kind of was a little bit more of rule by the people. But in that sense, you know, it just turned into sort of making it so that it would cement their own places. Yeah. The problem really is that the syndicate is only concerned with themselves and other rich people. Whereas... No, I agree. (laughs) Yeah. The ironic thing is that Nanamo, even though she is a monarch, she is the most concerned with the will and well-being of the people than anybody else. So she is the true voice of the people. Yeah, she is. And I think think part of it has to do with her own personality. But also, I think she realizes in some respects that really maybe it isn't, it's not time for people to, you know, give leadership ability to only a few. I think she's sort of listened to what her people want. She's very much aware of that. And so she genuinely, I think, is the voice of the people, but she makes sure to listen to them. Yeah, absolutely. As well. Absolutely. She's a lot more in touch than the merchants or even the religious institutions, because from what we see and what we talked about, basically, there's a huge overlap in power between the Order of Nalthal and the syndicate. So the religious institution has allied not with the monarchy, but with the merchant class. And because of all this, because of the lack of the rise of a middle class, there hasn't yet been, yet, been that democratic uprising. There's been an attempt by Nanamo to change the structure, but we know how that ended. So yeah, I, I don't think that people have had the chance to really do that just yet. Especially, especially when the people on the syndicate are the ones controlling sort of the police organizations. It makes it very tough. Yeah, you're right. We were talking about that before, right? How the brass blades and the stone torches also like are essentially under syndicate control. Yeah, it, it just hasn't been easy for people to uprise. And I think also because of that and because of that intertwining, we just have this monarchy which continues to decline in power. It's still there, but it really serves as more of a figurehead, I think, right now. Yeah. Than anything. Yeah. Which is very sad. <laughs> I really think that the decline of the monarchy must have been a gradual thing. It must have happened over the hundreds of years from the beginning of Ulda and also the beginning of the second Old Dynasty. Because 
I mean, we had that break in the old dynasty. So that must have been a huge disruption in the power of the monarchy in general, because they're seen as unstable now. Like it can change hands at any time. The marching class has grown. And honestly, things must have gotten a lot worse when the Sultan and Sultana both died. That's true. Yeah, Nanamo's parents ended up dying when she was around five years old, I believe. And so when she did, I mean, she's five years old. She isn't going to know a whole lot about state affairs. So it could have been, and it probably was, that the syndicate took advantage of that. They used that to sort of wear away at that power even more. And so she was sort of born into this situation that she did not want to be in. But she didn't really have much of a choice. Nope. She was born to be a ruler. And she just happened to be unlucky enough to be born as a ruler with no power. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Nanamo's absolutely one of my favorite characters. And the thing that I admire about her the most is that she's handed these really, really awful circumstances. That it's so hard that she is the puppet and she's fighting against this huge tide of just everything is about the wealthy, everything is about the wealthy. It's, you know, like her and Rabon are the only people that with the power to, you know, with any sort of influence. And in so many ways, it's them against the world. Just the, the two of them and their silly idealism that average people should have good lives too, right? That's not so silly. <laughs> oh, I know. That sounds realistic. Yeah. And I mean, just, just to think that Nanamo is almost screwed over before she even begins. She's screwed over from the time she's a child. Mm -hmm. is, is so difficult. There's so much working against her. And she couldn't have done anything differently or better from that time. She's done her best every day of her life. And it hasn't gotten her very far. And some people think that, look at her as powerless and weak because of her personality, of who she is. And it makes me so angry because people don't see how much is working against her and how well... She is still fighting despite all that, considering the circumstances that she is able to get up every day and still do her best to still show her face. Be like, everyone else thinks I'm nothing. Everything else, everyone else thinks I'm a puppet, but I'm still here. And I'm still saying things and doing things. I will do whatever I can, even if what I can do is very small. And hey, you know that Nanamo and Raobon made up this plan to get him on the syndicate so that he could be their voice, her voice. But actually, maybe... And guess what? Yeah. It worked? Guess what? They did it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a story back from 1.0. And because they were successful, you know, Raban's able to do a little bit more. And together, maybe they can actually do it. I think they will. I really hope so. Yeah, the, the thing I really... I adore the two of them, and especially Nanamo. Because, like, throughout her storyline, I've always been seeing this just recurring question in various direct, indirect forms. It's always been, what can I do? You know, sometimes the answer does end up being nothing because of how the government is structured, because of the laws that are in place. But she's always looking for ways to bring about justice and, like, do whatever she thinks is going to be best for her people. And so, like, yeah, you know, people are going to say she comes off as this weak person. Very composed, very delicate, very small individual. But here's the thing, she's still very strong. She, it's not really like a, an independent woman kind of thing. It's not that sort of archetype. She's not strong in the same way as somebody like Melvib is, obviously. She isn't quite as blunt about things, perhaps. But 
she's not really a damsel in distress either. She's always working toward bringing about that future that she wants to see. And so I think it's that combination. I mean, you, you can see how passionate I'm getting yeah. about this right now, I'm yeah. sure. But it's that combination of being like very, very soft, but still persistent that really led me to Nanamo. I think I sort of relate to that in some ways. And it caused her to end up becoming my muse. I don't know. I just, I love Nanamo to pieces. <laughs> I know. I know. She's she's really inspiring. I just love the way that she never gives up and she still holds her head high. She does. She gets rejected so many times. She'll get disappointed. Like, make no mistake, she gets disappointed. And especially at the beginning, she underestimates, like, the amount of power that she has. But she's working so hard to learn even more as she goes and figure out, is there a way that she can bring this change about that she wants to see? To be able to still work in those circumstances, to never give up, that's where her strength is. Definitely. The other thing, though, that I'd like to bring up is, I think this was kind of touched on earlier, but like, yeah, she doesn't have a whole lot of power on paper, but she and Raban still do have a lot of social influence. Otherwise, you wouldn't have as many people joining the Immortal Flames as you do. And you wouldn't have mm -hmm. those two Lalafels. Like, if you go outside the Uda Etherate Plaza, there are these two Lalafels just sitting there, and they're all, Long live the Sultana! You know, they made minions of Nanamo, Ooh. they have wind-up Nanamo, wind-up Raban that are pretty widely distributed. They built the Gate of the Sultana to commemorate her. And it's not because she said, make it so, it's because they just love her. I, I think that's yeah. gotta mean something, you know? She's so lovable. <laughs> she and Raban both, I think. Yeah, they're, they're very popular. They're sort of like who the, for the average people root for. They can mm -hmm. see themselves in them more easily than the merchants. Oh, but more, so much more is going to be talked about the two of them and other characters of Ulda next episode. Oh, I'm so excited. So much more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, I love talking about Ulda. Oh, it's so great that you have this podcast, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, listen to me blabber on and on about Ulda. Well, they listen to me blabber on and on about Limsa. So. Now it's my turn. <laughs> All right. Well, we are just about out of time for today. We have more about Uda and I think the people planned two weeks from now. But we will move on to our next little conclusion, I guess, segment here. So every week we give a story about our in-game experiences or even out-of-game experiences, but just kind of to show that we are not only podcasters, but we play and we very much enjoy Final Fantasy XIV. Yep. So... Would you like to give your story first? All right. I actually haven't had my PC for a little while. I'm doing a long distance move and UPS failed to deliver my package on Friday. Oh, what a surprise. UPS disappointing me. But so much of what I've been doing over the last few months has been in the realm of crafting. And I've come a really, really long way. And I wanted to kind of talk about what that's been like. And maybe give a couple of tips for other people that want to become crafters or get rich. Mostly I do it because it's, it's a, such a fun mini game. It's so complex, so many intertwining components. And it, it, it's just like a little, it's, it's a game into itself. Crafting is fun. Yeah. But tips would be appreciated though, because at the risk of sounding like a monetarist, I do need the money. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So my advice I would give is, number one, level all the crafters concurrently if you can not only you'll be sharing gear and cross-class skills 
but you'll be able to make all your own mats. For example, if you're making an armor piece, sometimes you will need cloth pieces as well. Sometimes you'll need even alchemist potions and tonics. If you have to buy that off the market board, you're going to go broke. You're going to spend all the money you make on these intermediate mats. Intermediate mats are very expensive because they take advantage of people's laziness. I know because that's one of the ways that I make the most money is selling intermediate mats to lazy crafters that won't level their other jobs. So definitely do them all at the same time. Try to keep them around the same level. You know, you'll share gear sets and, you know, finish your crafting logs. Make all of the items. You get a special bonus ring for that. You get achievements for it. But it's also a nice way to level. Sub 50. After 50, Moogle quests have been amazing. Sub 50, Ixali quests are also great for EXP. There's lots of different ways that don't make it grindy. Of course, leave quests. Get your friend to make me a leave kit, like Emmy makes me make her leave kits. <laughs> this is true. I'm just like, hey, I need leave kits. Yeah. Can you make stuff? Yeah, it, it shouldn't be grindy. And on a related point to that, another pro tip to be a crafter is be a gatherer because you need the raw materials to make your stuff. And again, if you're buying it all off the market board, you're going to go broke. I am going to grumble about that. I just don't like <laughs> I don't like gathering. But yeah. if that's the case, I might do it, but I'm not going to enjoy it one bit. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit it is a bit more tedious. It gets more interesting. After 50, when you've got the collectible system and different books and stuff, it, it does get better. But again, you, you can also do gathering leave quests. Oh, here, here's a great thing that I always did before I got everybody to 60. Every day I would do turn-ins to my grand company. They're kind of like one-day allowance leave quests, but and they give you a lot of EXP, and they also give you company seals, which you can buy various things, buy ventures, buy mats that are sometimes really expensive on the market board. You can level up your retainers in gathering classes, and then you can send them out on ventures to go get mats for you if you're really lazy and you don't want to go off and gather something. Just send your retainers after it. So in addition to leave quests, do the grand company turn-ins. And after you've done all your leveling, once you've got everybody to 60, I think one thing that I kind of wish I hadn't done was spent too much money on gear. Now, you absolutely want to have great gear, but basically I bought the cheapest level 60 crafting set and then I went to the carbon work set and then I got the iron work set. The problem is I wasn't using the carbon work set for very long and it cost a few million dollars. I had that carbon work set for a few weeks and yeah, it was nice, but it cost me a few million dollars and maybe I could have hold off and kind of skip that step and dealt with the cheap set until I was able to afford the ironworks. I do kind of re regret doing that because I mean, I also have to meld materia to all these sets and that's another way you just lose money. So see if you can go from your base cheap level 60 set like serpent skin and stuff right to ironworks and skip the middle. And everyone's gonna be mad at me now because now that stuff will sell like shit because I mean... <laughs> <laughs> But hey, Ironworks will be in demand. Yeah, I mean, Ironworks is it's good stuff, but I went from having like 12 million gil to like going down to like 3,000 every few days because I just, I ran out and I'm making more every day as my retainers sell things, but I kind of wish like I hadn't gone and like blown so much cash and I wanted to make an investment in crafting and I wanted to make it worth it, but I, but I think I, I could have skipped that step and saved a little bit of money. Here's the thing about about using intermediate sets though, and you would have to, it would take a lot of time to do that unfortunately, but if you do take your intermediate level crafting sets 
and you spirit bond them, and then maybe you put some junk materia in them instead, you might be able to get some good materia, and that could save you money in the long run. So that could be a perk of using those intermediate sets, but I wouldn't recommend doing it like a ton because it takes a long time. Believe me, it takes a long time to try and spirit bond those intermediate sets. Oh god, that's what I was about to say. I was like, all of my carbon weed stuff has like 3% spirit bond, and I'm like, okay, it wasn't that long, but it was a couple of weeks. You know, I, I crafted dozens and dozens of things, like 3%? Come on, I'm never going to spirit bond yeah. you. <laughs> That's kind of something to be said about it, but keep in mind it's going to take forever. So if you're like me, I guess, and you don't have a lot of gill, and you know that you are going to be stuck on that on 60 but not necessarily Master Crafter for a long time, then it might maybe be worth it to do a carbon weave set. Yeah. Another thing I was going to say is that since Ironworks has been out for a long time now, it's going to be a lot more economical for you to commission those pieces from people. Oh, that's true. Yeah, and you'll save a lot of money versus the market board too. And unfortunately, if you are a crafter, there's this point where like to get to like the three-star level, you have to have the weapon but you can't make the weapon until you're three, until you're three star. So I, I had that little bit of a conflict towards the end out. But now that I've bought a couple things off the market board just as, as like starters, um, I was able to make a little bit more money. And now from now on, I'm just going to get everything commissioned by my friends that are in other specialists. One last thing I wanted to add on the subject of crafting. My character on Gilgamesh, my main, who's the three star, Natsuki, my cat boy. I actually wanted to start RPing with him a little bit more. I know it's a silly name, but one thing that I saw a couple of other role players do that I ended up copying, I never thought I would be able to RP with him with that kind of name, but an in-universe canon way of doing it is saying, okay, so their real name is something lore appropriate. Like his real name is like a, is a keeper of the moon Makode name, mm-hmm. but Natsuki McCatboy is like his adventurer nickname. It's a name that he adopted. So that's one way of getting around having kind of whatever name you want. You also have to just think up a quote unquote real name. Ever since I realized that, I've wanted to develop his character more because I love him. I play with him every day. He's, I love him. He's my baby. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to make an offer to any of our listeners that are on Gilgamesh, want to role play and want things crafted for them. If you send me a tell or a message on Natsuki McCatboy with an apostrophe after the MC. If you send me a tell, and if you do a little RP with me, I will craft you something for free. Also bring me the mats. <laughs> what about Scoot, though? <laughs> Scoot? I already roleplay with, with Natsu a little bit. Yeah, so you get whatever you want for free if you give me the mats. Sweet. Whee! <laughs> Very nice. I think at this point they don't even have to be HQ. I think. Oh, wow. Depending on if it's a specialist recipe or not. That's neat, though. Yeah, anybody on Gilgamesh. Hit up Natsuki McCatboy. Apostrophe after the mix. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so... So what's this week's experience for you, Emmy? Let me think. I haven't been doing a whole lot lately, but a couple weeks ago, I started up... Or not started up, but I repurposed the FC that I was in. And this is my Gilgamesh free company. And it had become pretty inactive, but based on some in-game experiences that went very negatively, I decided that it would be kind of a neat idea to start up this sort of FC agency. 
And so what the goal of this was, was to reach out to both adventurers and FC leaders and try to introduce them to each other based on what both of them want. So we would partner up with a bunch of free companies and then, you know, start advertising to adventurers who are looking for FCs or maybe even just a place to stay saying, hey, we have this cool FC agency available. Let us know what you want in your FC and we'll hook you up with some people and see if it's a good fit. Well, we just opened up for business after getting around 20, yes, 22, I think at this point, partner FCs. And so we've started looking for people who are either looking for FCs or just kind of want to take a break and not get really harassed by random people recruiting for FCs, but kind of want to take a bit more of a hands-off approach to things. So that's what the FC is about, and we just opened up, so that's kind of neat. I guess since that's a pretty short story, I'll go into another one if that's okay. Well, you haven't told us the name of your FC and how people can get in oh, touch with true. you. That's true. Well, <laughs> if you are interested in joining, um, it's Starry Nights FC Agency. I think the official title is just Starry Nights, but the tag is star, just all uppercase letters. And we are on Gilgamesh. The other FC uh, related story that I had, though, because it's pretty short as well, was something that's going on within my Lich FC. Oh. And... I'm in that. You are in that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you're actually in the story, too. We are currently working on planning a murder mystery night over there. Ooh, yes. Our very own in-game event, just like all the cool kids on Balmung have. Yeah. Except <laughs> it's on Lich, which is a lot, you know, quieter of a server. Yeah. We are working on kind of putting together this murder mystery and... The FC on Lich is made of pretty much all, with one exception, I think, pretty much all NPC clones. And so all of us roleplay, to varying extents, as NPCs. We decided that it would be a cool idea to sort of start up a roleplay event and see if people were going to be interested in maybe roleplaying on Lich. So if you are interested maybe in starting a character on Lich, you're welcome there. And we will be giving away a whole lot of stuff there as well. But you can help solve the mystery of who killed Nashu. Oh, gasp. Yes. <laughs> who, who was it? <laughs> who was it? So it'll be on August 14th, and that'll be at 3 p.m. Eastern, which is a bit odd of a time, but considering that it's an EU server, we wanted to kind of make it fairly available to people from both North America and Europe. Yeah, and that's 12 noon for you Pacific people. Yep. We'll be giving away Mog Station prizes, gill, items. Minions. Yeah, I think we're giving away, one of our options is a white, cho a white fat chocobo code if you don't have it. And I think that's only available for North America, sadly. Yeah, because we were only able to buy North America codes, so we're only able to give away those. So if you want to come over and hang out, hang out with the Europeans, you'll have an advantage there. <laughs> The thing is, it's open to everybody because all of the activities that you're going to be able to do are going to be accessible to new, you know, level one characters. As long as you start in Limsa and can come join us in the Mist, you can play. So it's pretty much open to really anybody who's interested. Yeah. So if you want to check out the Sultan Sworn, see what they're like, or just hang out with the NPCs or, you know, hang out with us. Hang out with people. us. <laughs> yeah. Spin up a new copy of your muse and come join us on Lich. It'll be fun. Yes, it will. 
More info is going to be on our website, musecastxiv.com. I'll be rotating the flyer there. That's exciting. Yeah, we're in the process of creating a flyer, so I'm just kind of arranging photo shoots with the people who are involved. We asked them to look scary and intimidating. I think it worked better for some than others. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to be pretty cool. So that about wraps it up for today. It does. We will catch you, I guess, next time when we discuss a little bit more about Uda and more of a focus on the people next episode. Yeah. We'll try to keep it concise on our one topic, but we just have so much to say. We do. (laughs) And once again, if you want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash musecastxiv. There's links on our website. If you want that sweet, sweet, juicy bonus content, throw us a few bucks. We will be very happy that you did. <laughs> we will. Oh, and of course we are on iTunes. iTunes and Stitcher. And then we are on Tumblr and Facebook and Twitter. I remember yes. this time. <laughs> Woo! So, yeah, musecast14.com or just look up musecast14 on Facebook and Twitter is at musecast 14 well xiv all of these are xiv for 14 yep come join us have a conversation on twitter i am the social media manager yes (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us today and we're looking forward to chatting with you again next time adventurers see you next time thanks for listening to musecast 14 tune in next time when we'll be discussing uldan society part two happy adventuring And may you ever walk in the light of the crystal.